This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. So, we were supposed to start our Sunday night sermons tonight. And we're gonna. (laughs) 4 p.m. Right here. We'll start... We'll see what happens. The other thing I wanted to say, I wanted to mention this for you guys. Um, for a while now, but recently I've noticed it, we've gotten to a point in our church where there is, it's really a cool thing, there is a lot of stuff going on that I don't know about it. Good stuff. A lot of ministry, a lot of people helping people, a lot of people serving people, and I find out about it and it's like, wow, that's cool. And so, I just want to tell you guys from up here that you're awesome. That everything that this body is doing is a witness. It's, a, it's evidence that, that Christ is at work in our lives and through our lives. So take hope in that. If you're tired, if you're worn out, that's a good thing. It means you're doing it right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that, that you have revealed yourself so greatly to us in your word and the, the ways that you have revealed your glory and your power and your might. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a better understanding, a better ability to glorify you for your, your authority and your power and your majesty. We confess, Lord, that too often you are not the central focus of our hearts. Our minds and our hearts drift. They wander. They look for things to hold on to, for people to hope in. I pray, Lord, that you would call us back to yourself this morning and that you would show yourself again to be powerful. And we praise you and we thank you for your patience in doing that for us week after week. Father, we know that this blessing and gift is only ours through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so it is in his name that I pray. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. I'm sure most of you have at least heard the word postmodernism. Britannica defines postmodernism as a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism subjectivism or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. In other words, postmodernism is the suspicion of institutional authority or Uh, questioning whether what that institution says is simply to maintain their authority. We see this every day in the realm of politics. Almost everyone is suspicious of the institution of politics that nowadays, doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, every politician we question whether or not they're saying the things they say just to stay in power. That's postmodernism. However, we also see postmodernism at work today in the realm of religion. 
In other words, for the most part, our culture has relegated Christianity to somewhere between a fairy tale and a self-help program for the uneducated and weak-minded. And as that sentiment of our culture grows, the the so-called educated and enlightened, they'll find a kind of smug refuge in the, the logic of nature and science and humanism, while the Christian message will be called more and more outdated and corrupt. They will say that that there's no longer a need for salvation or the church or the Bible. Those are just things that religion say to hold on to authority. They'll say we need more funding, and education is the key to doing things. Now make no mistake, at the heart of the postmodernist movement is the denial of authority. And one of the ways we see this the clearest is the postmodern denial of a coming divine judgment. We don't need to be concerned with some mythical future judgment, they say. We need only worry about the potential devastation we might cause ourselves through global warming or fossil fuels or something like that. You see, their rejection of any coming judgment, it's rooted in their determination to escape authority by making themselves accountable only to themselves. Simply put, they want a God who is silent when it comes to a final reckoning on their lives. And this is nothing new. Peter's actually already addressed this in part. So our passage this morning, what Peter's going to do is he's going to return to our need to be reminded. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It ought to sound familiar to you. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. Peter's already said that, but this morning he's going to speak more specifically about remembering the coming judgment. So that's what I want to persuade you of this morning. I want to convince you that we must remember that judgment is coming. That must be a focus of our lives. That must be something that drives us and fuels us. We must remember that judgment is coming. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 again, where Peter begins by telling us we must remember that judgment is coming because Jesus and the Scriptures command it. He says, this is now the second letter I'm writing you, and both of them I'm stirring you up by sincere way of reminder to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, if you'll remember, the last time we were together in in chapter 2, Peter just unleashed on the false prophets, the false teachers. He called them useless. He called them like dogs who return to their vomit. He called them slaves who claim to teach you about freedom. He really led into them. However, this morning, 
no longer railing against those false teachers, yet, yet all the same intensity. Peter turns his eyes to you and I, and he's going to tell us, Beloved, I am writing to remind you to remember. Remember that judgment is coming. And Peter begins this call to remember by taking away any argument his detractors might have with him personally. He begins by eliminating his critics' ability to claim that what Peter's saying is just his opinion or subjective experience. He, he sets his critics in front of the throne of God and bids them argue with him. He says in verse 1 and 2, I'm writing to remind you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I'm not saying this. I'm just telling you to remember what the Bible has already said. Here's one example out of hundreds that Peter might be referring to. It's in Isaiah 24. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you, and I want you to listen. Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore. A curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, the earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again. We must remember that judgment is coming because the prophets foretold it. But it's not just the prophets, Peter says. It's not just because the prophets predicted it. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke about His future arrival in glory and power on His throne. And He talked about how when He arrived on His throne, that the sun and the moon would go dark and that the stars would fall from the heavens, that the earth would be shaken. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, Jesus commanded us to remember this coming judgment, saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're supposed to live our lives as if that will happen now. No, wait, now. In fact, while he was talking about these end things, Jesus told a story about ten brides that were waiting for their grooms to show up. But he says the grooms got stuck in traffic and five of the brides didn't bring enough oil to keep their lamps going. So they had to leave to go get some more oil. And while they were gone, the grooms showed up. When the brides got back, they said, wait, wait, we're here. Let us in. And the groom said, I don't know you. Depart from me. It was a story that Jesus told to press into us the necessity of waiting and remembering and being prepared for His return. 
Brothers and sisters, we must be found with our lamps full and our wicks trimmed, waiting for our Savior. We must remember that judgment is coming because Jesus himself commanded us to. However, that waiting, that watching, that remembering, it's not easy. In fact, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. We must remember that judgment is coming because Jesus commanded it. But look at verse 3 and 4 where Peter tells us that we got to remember judgment is coming because scoffers will deny it. He says, remember in verse 2, the holy commandments, <clears throat> excuse me, the commandments of your Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says these scoffers will come denying any coming judgment because of their sinful desires. So uh, again, make no mistake, this scoffing is born out of a desire to not give an account for their lives. But contrary to what these self-proclaimed educated would like to think, their ideas are actually nothing new at all. In fact, their motives are, are literally the oldest motives ever. Their sinful desires are literally identical to those of Adam and Eve, who wanted to be like God. They wanted autonomy. They wanted to de determine their own outcome. They say in verse 4, you guys keep talking about this coming judgment, but, you know, the earth has been spinning, planets have been going, this whole universe thing's been going on for years and years. Life has come and go. Nothing's changing. What gives? In fact, in our day, people like this, they've amplified this natural cycle to millions and billions of years. The earth has been, been going on and the universe has been taking shape. Nowadays, they say, listen, our research tells us this universe um, has been here for billions of years. Planets and life have come and gone and evolved. There's no judgment coming. It's all natural. And if we dare question their research, they call us ignorant and simple-minded. Peter is warning and encouraging and admonishing us this morning. Remember that judgment is coming because the so-called educated and enlightened will deny it. Recently, I was having a conversation with a friend, and he described a, a person in his life who's constantly joking and ribbing him about his belief in God. He described how this person constantly makes little jabs at him for reading his Bible or praying or talking about the gospel. He's not openly hostile, mind you, but he's persistent in remarking how silly he thinks my friend's beliefs are. Anyway, my friend asked me, what my, I might have advice on how he should respond. He didn't want to start a fight, but he does want to be proactive and, and try to respond to this person in a way that would be useful. Anyway, my advice to him was pretty simple. I said, every time he takes a little jab at you, just winsomely say, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What if I'm right and there is a judgment? 
If I'm wrong, I've lived a life, I have no skin off my back, I've lived a life of hope and peace and community. If you're wrong, there's big problems. We must remember judgment is coming because Jesus commanded it and because scoffers will deny it. Now look at verse 5 and 6 where Peter points out these scoffers' greatest error. He says, we must remember judgment is coming because God's already done it. It says in verse 5, for they, that's the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They overlooked this one fact, Peter says. Yes, the heavens and the earth did exist long ago. That is, is all true. But those heavens and earth were formed out of water by the word of God. And Peter says they overlooked the one fact that, that by means of these, these being water and the word of God, by means of these, the scoffers back then perished when God destroyed the world. He's already done it once. But notice how Peter says they don't just overlook this fact. He says they deliberately overlook this fact. Did you know that in every ancient religion there is an account of a flood? Did you know that any geologist worth his salt, any geologist living in reality, will tell you that there is evidence of a worldwide flood in the, in the geological record, in the ground? Yet standing right in front of that dirt, so many of them will say, they'll call you ignorant for saying that God will destroy the world again, while they're standing right in front of evidence that the world had been destroyed before. Like an ostrich with their head in the sand, they, they deliberately deny the evidence that God has already destroyed this earth once. Following their own desires, they deny the truth right in front of them. And Peter's already defined what those desires are. If you just look back at chapter 2, he said in verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality. He says in verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. He says in verse 10, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. In verse 14, he says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. In verse 18, at the beginning of 18, he says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. In other words, they deliberately overlook the fact that God has already destroyed the earth once because of one overriding truth. They overlook the fact that God has already destroyed the earth for the exact same reasons that they are living out. And they reject the idea of any coming judgment because they desire to live in a universe without moral accountability. And Peter is saying, the Bible's already shown that ain't going to happen. There's proof in the ground that God isn't going to allow that. And listen, Peter's message could not be more important to us this morning because these scoffers' denials, they've put down deep roots into our culture. Deep roots. The roots of, of, of these scoffers' denial have, have found fertile soil in places like the education and the scientific communities. 
the vast majority of educators and scientists of our day are leading the charge by teaching our children that a coming judgment is an ignorant, uneducated philosophy taught by, to you by people who are simply trying to cling to authority. And you're ridiculed if you disagree with them. For example, listen to how deliberate a philosopher at New York University named Thomas Nagel is. Listen to how deliberate he is at denying this in his book. It's titled The Last Word. He says, and I quote, I want atheism to be true, but I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe to be like that. And we're sitting in church and you're supposed to be, oh, that's crazy. I want you to listen to me, though, that the statistics regarding the number of college-age professing Christians who have been influenced by people like Nagel are staggering. People like that are having an effect. So Peter says, I'm writing to you to remember that judgment is coming. To remember because Jesus commanded it. To remember because scoffers will deny it. And to remember because it already happened. And in verse 7, Peter says, we must remember judgment is coming lastly because God will do it again. He says, but by the same word. That's the word that destroyed the world by water back in verse 6. By that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I don't know the last time you've hiked in the Sandia Mountains. But if you've gone off the trails at least a little bit, or even if you've been on the trails, one of the things that you've surely noticed is the piles and piles of fallen trees that are up there. It's, it's several feet deep going up that mountain. Nobody will go in there and clean it out. It's like a giant tinderbox. And Peter is saying that this world is like the Sandia Mountains. It's just piled up with kindling ready to burn. Now, something interesting has taken place in our culture. Currently, our enemy has begun using a flawed argument. It can be difficult to unravel. It's, it's, caught a, it's called a causal fallacy. A causal fallacy, it's an argument that takes a bit of truth, but wrongly associates the purpose or the reason for that happening. For example, a causal fallacy would be, Jimmy's not at school today, so he must be at the doctor. It's a causal fallacy. You don't know why he's not at school. The sidewalk is wet, so it must have rained. You don't, maybe the sprinklers got the sidewalk wet. You don't know. That's a causal fallacy. Or the earth is warming, so it must be man's doing. That's a causal fallacy. The point is Peter's reminding His reminder to us this morning could never be more important because Christians and non-Christians alike have bought hook, line, and sinker into the causal fallacy that because there's evidence that the earth is unraveling, it must be man's doing. 
our culture has taken the evidence that something is wrong and they've diverted our attention from God to man. Our culture is gripped by the fear that we somehow have the ability to end life on earth. Whether it be through nuclear war or or man-made pollutants, scientists are bowing at the idol of man by claiming that we somehow have the power to end life on earth. To them I say, your predictions are headed in the right direction, but your temperatures are off just a little bit. Yes, the earth is going to warm, but it's going to get a lot hotter, a lot faster, and for a very different reason than you think. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that this judgment is coming. This pile of sinful kindling is going to be lit. Someday. And it's going to come the same way it did with the flood by the word of God. We can lob nukes at each other. We can all go buy a bunch of diesels and leave them running 24 hours a day. We can even throw our Coke cans in the trash. But this world will not end until God commands it to. But that's the point. He will. One day. He will command it to end. And when he does, this world will end in a ball of fire because that word of God is going to be enough. Enough with the sin and the injustice that's taking place in my creation, the slaying of innocence. Enough, he'll say. With blasphemy and idolatry and and adultery, enough with denying my existence and with persecuting my saints, enough, God will say. And this world will melt Voluntarily or involuntarily, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We must remember that judgment is coming because Jesus commanded it. Because the scoffers will deny it, because God's already done it, and because God said he's going to do it again. Does that frighten you? Am I just one of those people saying things like this to cling to some antiquated institutional authority? Is this just one more of that fire and brimstone that you don't need in your life? Well, what should it sound like? I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. So what effect should this message of Peter have on our life? Let me leave you with a few things. First, we must remember that judgment is coming because it will drive us to evangelism. The spread of the gospel in America is languishing in part because we do not have an acute awareness that judgment is coming. Now, don't get me wrong. We evangelize a lot of things. We evangelize athletes, we evangelize inventions, we we evangelize stupid little cats on YouTube, we evangelize all kinds of things, but our evangelism when it comes to salvation is languishing because our, our, our remembering of this judgment is also languishing. 
Think of someone you really don't like. I mean, someone who legitimately agitates you. And I know you're in church and you love everybody unconditionally, but let's be honest. Think of someone who you really don't like. And imagine that person tomorrow coming into the presence of God and spending eternity in pain and damnation. I don't know about you, but for me, that changes my perspective on everybody. I can't think of anyone in my life, even the people that really bug me to death, that I would hope that for. The permanent, fiery judgment of God, it gives us a different perspective on people, doesn't it? We must remember that judgment is coming because it will fuel our desire to spread the gospel. Second, we must remember that judgment is coming because it will motivate us to live lives of holiness. In a few weeks, we're going to see Peter's conclusion on this matter of final things. Let's just peek forward a little bit to verse 11 in chapter 3. Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a good question to ask. It's a natural question. You want some motivation to live a holy life? The next time you're thinking about doing something you shouldn't? Imagine God rolling up on His throne with enough fire to melt the earth. See if that changes your mind. We must remember that judgment is coming because it will fuel our desire to spread the gospel and it will motivate us to live lives of holiness. Now the last thing that remembering judgment is coming should cause in us is a little different than the first two. If you're here and you don't believe, if you would not call yourself a Christian, the gospel does something weird to Christians. It changes our hearts in ways that you might not expect. The Bible tells us that Jesus is coming to tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. That is a true fact. Do you know what I say? Bring it. Bring it. As, as, as Bob pointed out this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul is talking about how he is soon going to be leaving this earth and coming to, to the face with God. And he says, I have run this race. I've done it right. And he says, there is a crown of righteousness in store for me and anyone who has loved the appearing of Christ. In other words, if you're in this room this morning and you love that Christ appeared, has appeared, past tense, that Jesus Christ appeared to die on a cross for your sins, that He appeared to give you the righteousness that He won. If you believe, if you love that appearing of Christ, Paul says that there is also a crown of righteousness stored up for you. In other words, the gospel assures me that the only thing Christ will do to me when He returns is strip me of the sin that I want so greatly to be rid of as well. You see, the gospel changes a Christian's heart so that rather than crying out in fear at God's return, we cry out, How long, O Lord? Please return. 
We desire to see our Savior. As we draw closer to this judgment that is coming, the gospel changes our hearts so that we won't, don't want less of Jesus but more. We don't want to hide from Him. We want to find Him. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that judgment is coming, not only so we won't fall prey to the lie that it isn't, but so that we'll look forward and hope that it is. We must remember that judgment is coming because until then, the gospel will cause us to say, just give me Jesus. Just give me more Jesus. I want to know Him as much as possible so that I can be as close to Him as possible when He does finally return. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but His love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing, though billows roll. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you lay before us the, the coming power and wrath of your judgment, we first fall to our knees and praise and thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ that has removed that wrath from our future. In humility, we magnify and glorify your name, that you, would, that you would make us part of the multitudes that will sit around your throne for eternity, praising you and glorifying you for your work on the cross. Father, we so look forward to this. I pray, Lord, that you would Cause this truth to motivate us to share this good news. To display to others that the things of this world don't frighten us. That the leaders and the, all the mess and the garbage going around everywhere, you're still on your throne. Let that hope and that peace be evident to all. Father, I pray that you would also give us strength and courage to stand up to those who deny and mock and ridicule us for these beliefs so that if anything, you could be praised for our hope in you. Father, it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.